Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of the, his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, 
for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Good morning, Fellowship Bible Church. The Lord is risen. Please join me in prayer. Father, we are such a privileged people. We thank you for this picture that we have in John 11 of the life that you sent your son Jesus into the world to give. 2,000 years ago, you sent your son, your only beloved son, on a mission into this world that was cursed by death to rescue those who were dead and to give life to dead sinners. And such we were. And we stand indebted to you forever. Lord, this morning, would you help us to live in the power of the resurrection and to understand what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that the one who believes in him Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. And establish us in this truth this morning. For your glory, amen. The world that we live in is plagued by death. No one would hesitate to affirm that, except possibly the youngest and most inexperienced among us who have seen very little of the world. Death is all around us, isn't it? Accidents happen and our loved ones are taken from us unexpectedly. The news is full and fuller, seems, by the year of shootings and other kinds of murders. Sometimes people die much younger than we expect them to. The truth of the matter is, each one of us, from the time we enter the world, the clock starts ticking till we too will go to our death. The clock is ticking. It's only a matter of time. Death is the one thing that unites all humanity without exception. It comes for the rich as well as for the poor, the well-educated and the one who didn't finish high school. 
It doesn't matter how many friends you have, how much you stay in shape, or how healthy you eat, death comes to us all. None of us knows when, but it's coming. And this is simple, straightforward reality. And I think it's fair to say that how a person responds to that reality or how a person tries to reckon with that reality will determine much about them and how they live their lives. Many people try to improve themselves as best they can. They know they're going to die, but they want to push that expiration date out as far as they can. And so they make healthy life choices, they make good money, they have a family, and they try to enjoy the good things of this life into a ripe old age, make the most of it. Others may have the same goal, but they have less foresight. And so they live for the moment, spending their money frivolously on whatever happens to fit their fancy right now. And few people in either of these camps actually think of death much at all. And when they do, they try to push it to the back of their minds. Make funerals as short and as few as possible so they don't have to think of it. I'm alive now. I'm going to enjoy it now. But then there are others, maybe the less fortunate, maybe those who have had more than what we might consider to be their fair share of pain and suffering, who don't have that luxury. And they're faced to look pain and death in the face, and they sink into despair and say with the author of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But the truth is, death will come. And Scripture helps us understand why. When we listen to God's Word, He tells us that death was not always here. Death was not here in the world that God created. Death death happened when the people that God made chose to sin against Him. Disobeyed His command. In Genesis chapter 2, God had warned our first parents, Adam and Eve. He told Adam that in the day he chose to eat of that tree, he would surely die. Well, we know what happened. He did choose to eat of that tree. And he and all mankind with him did die, spiritually and physically. The whole human race fell into a condition of sin and misery. Romans 6.23 tells us that the fair wages for sin is death. That's why we have it. Therefore, death has come to all mankind because all mankind has sinned. So as we consider the problem of death and the ticking clock that we all face, we realize that if death is going to be dealt with, sin must be dealt with first. And that's what we heard about on Friday night, the good news. When our brother Tim preached on 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus fully paid the debt of our sin by living a perfect life and then dying a sinner's death. Our sin was imputed to him, and his righteousness was imputed to us who have faith in him. But that can't be the end of the story. It can't. If Jesus dying in our place cannot be the end of the story, because if that's the end... It is not good news. If Jesus is still in the grave, then our debt was not paid and our guilt is still on us. 
and we still bear it. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 14. And then he says again, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised. See, Jesus came to redeem fallen humanity, to purchase them back with his own blood, to give life to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. So if he died and stayed dead, then his mission failed. That mission he was sent on failed if he is still dead. He can't give life if he is dead. He can't resuscitate you from your spiritual death if he's still in the grave. In short, if he died and stayed dead, that would mean that the weight of our combined sin and guilt was too heavy and therefore crushed the Son of God. And in that case, we have every cause to despair and give up hope. Because if Jesus is still dead, then there is absolutely no hope in this world. But of course, as we heard read earlier, the good news, Jesus did not stay dead. And that's what we celebrate today. The Apostle Paul says that he was raised for our justification. In other words, the resurrection and Christ's death are tied so close together, you cannot separate them. The resurrection is the, the, the culmination of his death. It gives validation to what he did in his death. In John chapter 11, we're introduced to a family who is brought face to face with death. And in John chapter 11, what we see is Jesus is giving us a sneak peek, if you will, into what his resurrection will accomplish in the lives of sinners. So we're, we're, we're introduced to a family who is brought face to face with death an early death, as they would consider it. Three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who, if you are at all familiar with Scripture, they're a, they're a family we're well acquainted with. We're told in verse 5, this is a family that Jesus loves. And it's mentioned several times throughout this chapter that he loved Lazarus in particular. But we know that Jesus spent a lot of time with this family. And so it comes as a bit of a surprise that when Jesus hears that the one that he loves is sick, he waits two days to go. It's confusing to us, but the text indicates at least three reasons for this. Number one, whatever else we might say, we know that Jesus was motivated by love for Lazarus and the family. We have this odd sentence that's odd to our ears in verses five and six. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... Notice that connecting word. That's really important. So, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So whatever the reason was, it was because he loved them. Jesus also says that this death is for the glory of God, that the Son of Man may be glorified in it. So it's for God's glory. And then third, it's for the sake of the faith of his disciples. Verse 15. He says, for your sake, I was glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. And brothers and sisters, when we face unexpected tragedy, let us bear in mind these three things. That our God, who is, who is sovereign over all things, he has these three motives behind all of the trials that he will inflict upon his children. Number one, he loves you. Number two, he desires to be glorified in you. And number three, he desires to grow your faith. Those are always true. 
Now, there's a lot of things that are interesting in this story. We simply don't have time to focus on all of it. So I'm going to jump ahead to verse 17. And we're told that in verse 17, that by the time Jesus finally arrives on the scene, Lazarus has been dead four days. Now, the distance from where Jesus was when he received the message to where he went was maybe a day's journey. So if you do the math, it's probable that Lazarus died before the message even reached him. We don't know that for sure. That's a little bit of conjecture. But evidently, this illness was severe and short-lasting. And by this time, four days in the grave, a large number of mourners had come from Jerusalem to comfort the family. That was sort of the ritual of the day. And the fact that there were a large number that came indicates that this family was probably fairly well-off, well-known. It was a well-respected family. So the audience for which Jesus is going to do this miracle is a big one. We're actually told, following this story, that some of these Jews went back to Jerusalem and told the Pharisees about it. And that was what expedited their mission to put him to death. So the events that led to his arrest were initiated by this miracle. Jesus knew all this would happen. He knew that it was time soon for him to die, and it's no accident, it's a beautiful picture, that on the way to Jerusalem for his own death, he gave life to a sinner. Pictures the exchange that we've been talking about. Now when Jesus arrives, Martha goes out to meet him, and in verse 21 she says this, Jesus, uh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a simple statement of faith. Some people have read a lot into this statement as if she's kind of sort of condemning Jesus. We're not really sure because what she says next is, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha here expresses faith that Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. It isn't likely that she expects him to actually raise her brother Lazarus because when they get to the actual tomb and Jesus says, roll the stone away, she's like, no, he stinks. And she, she obviously doesn't either think he will or he doesn't believe that he will or something. But like us all, Martha has maybe some wavering faith. She knows Jesus can do whatever he wants to, but she doesn't necessarily expect him to do what she would love for him to do. But Jesus wants to grow her faith, and so he tells her, your brother will rise again. Now, I love this. This is Jesus being intentionally ambiguous, right? He, he knows that she knows, and he expects her to think that he's talking about the resurrection. And he might be. It might be a double meaning. But he obviously also knows what he's about to do. And so she responds to that, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, What she says here is a statement of Jewish orthodoxy. The Pharisees had well established this doctrine by looking at various places in the scripture, including Psalm 1610, which says that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So this this doctrine had been, but it was, it had been fairly well developed, but it was still pretty vague and shadowy and they didn't understand a lot because the Old Testament doesn't tell us a lot about what happens after death. But it seems like what's happening is Martha is repeating what she knows to be true, but perhaps something that she's not really drawing much comfort from. Many of us in times of grief have experienced maybe, uh, maybe doctrine that's true, but at the moment it doesn't really give us much comfort. It's, probably, it's very possibly what the Jews had been trying to console her with. She's saying, I, I know this is true. 
And then Jesus responds, and it's his response that I want us to focus on this morning. This Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, Jesus takes her vague, shadowy, general knowledge that her brother will rise again on the last day, and he focuses it. And he focuses it on himself. He says that he, Jesus himself, is the reason for hope beyond the grave. Jesus himself is the reason for anyone's hope beyond the grave. So he says this. Let's read it again. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, from Jesus' statement, I want to look at four things. First, I want to look at his initial statement that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What Jesus is emphasizing here is the first words in the statement. So they're already talking about the resurrection and life. Jesus is emphasizing, I am the resurrection and the life. Whatever hope there is after death, it's me. Without me, there is no resurrection from the dead. There is no true life. In other words, life itself, in all its forms, is from Jesus. Life, if there is life after death, is only because of Jesus. Now this is true, the fact that all life is from Jesus. It's true in the purely physical sense. In the first chapter of John, we're told that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Talking about the creative life that gives life to the world. All things created have their life through the creative power of Jesus Christ. You wake up every morning because Jesus lives and causes you to live. All creation keeps on existing because Jesus lives. There is literally no life in anything that you see that lives apart from Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But physical life is not primarily what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus knows the clear teaching of Scripture that ever since the fall of mankind, Jesus knows this because this was his mission, again, ever since the fall of mankind, we are spiritually dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul writes in Ephesians 2. We know this is what Jesus has in mind because in John 6, 35, this is what he told the Jews. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Dead. Apart from Jesus, men and women, boys and girls, every single one on this planet are walking dead people. Their life is a shell. There is no true spiritual life in them. We're incapable of of living spiritually. For people apart from Christ, that shell is a ticking time bomb. And when that clock runs out, we have nothing but spiritual death on the other side of it. And by the way, spiritual death does not mean a ceasing to exist. The scriptural teaching is that death is a separation. The first death is a separation from your body, your soul from your body. The second separation is eternal separation from God in a place of eternal torment. This is what Jesus means then when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He means, apart from me, there is no hope for you. 
if you want to be saved, and if you want to have eternal life, then look to me. Jesus is telling Martha and all people everywhere, turn your eyes to me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 65. Jesus is saying, you're seeking hope in the face of death, the death of your brother. Take heart because I am the resurrection and the life. And I love him. That's why Jesus' love for Lazarus is so emphasized here is because it is Jesus' love for Lazarus that gives them hope. Your faith, brothers and sisters, doesn't need to be in a piece of cold, ambiguous orthodoxy like Martha's was. Your faith needs to be in Jesus alone. Jesus is saying, Lazarus is in my hands. You, Martha, are in my hands. This morning, are your eyes on Jesus for your hope, or are they on something else? Have you distracted yourself, maybe, and you just have tried to push the thought of death as far away as possible? And is the reason you have hope this morning because you never think about it? Or is it because you have looked to and fixed your eyes on the one who can save you from death and give you eternal life? Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And what Jesus says next, and this is wonderful, is that you and you and you can share in the resurrection and the life that he is. He emphasizes this by saying it twice, and he says it in two different ways. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then he states it again in a similar but slightly different way, and he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We're going to look at both of those statements this morning, but first I want you to notice a couple of things about this belief in Jesus. First, notice that what Jesus is doing is making a promise. Jesus is making a promise. He's saying that anyone and everyone who believes in him will benefit from his identity as the resurrection and the life and will share in that life. Remember, Jesus' mission, he came to earth to give life and now he's telling us how you get that life. He came to earth to a planet of people that were dead in their sins, spiritually incapable of any good, and he came to give them life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not suffer the second death, the separation from God forever, but have eternal life. Eternal life. He's full of goodwill towards sinners. The one who comes to him, he says in chapter 6 of this book, he will never cast out. It doesn't matter how much bad you've done. It doesn't matter how, much you have, how long you have pretended to be a Christian, said the right things, tried to persuade yourself of the right things, maybe fooled a lot of other people. It doesn't matter how heavy a load of guilt is on you this morning. He came to give life and his offer still stands to everyone who will believe in him. And all that is required is belief, faith, trust. Jesus says, whoever believes in me. Literally, this verse reads, and this is the way that it reads all the time in John, 
whoever believes into me. That's, that's, that's clunky and that's awkward and that's why we don't translate it that way. But that's what that word means, whoever believes into me. In other words, being a Christian is more than just identifying yourself as a Christian, wearing that label. Being a Christian isn't belonging to a Christian family. It isn't being raised a Christian or hanging out with other Christians now. Being a Christian is more than going to a solid Bible-believing church and sitting under Christ-centered preaching. And being a Christian is even more than understanding and believing all the right doctrines and statements of faith of historical Christianity. The word into indicates a personal faith, trust, and reliance upon the person of Jesus Christ alone. You have seen that in your sin you fall far short of God's glory. You have experienced the pang of conviction over your sin. And you know that apart from a Redeemer, you stand condemned and there is no hope for you. Even the slightest thing that you do when you wake up in the morning, the slightest sin that you commit separates you from God. You know that. You sense that. The weight of that. You've seen that without a Savior, you're doomed. And then you have seen Christ. And you have seen his free offer of forgiveness and you have trusted in him alone as the divinely appointed sacrifice for your sin, the one mediator between God and men that he sent to give life to you. And you've forsaken all other trusts, you've forsaken all other hopes, and you've placed it wholly on Jesus Christ. That is what it means to believe in Jesus. And what scripture teaches is that just that simple, childlike act of faith, belief, trust unites you to Christ. And this is such a marvelous doctrine. It unites you to Christ literally so that you become one with him. You share in everything that he has done and is doing and will do in the future. His righteous life is yours. His death is yours. You died spiritually. His life is yours. You were raised spiritually. You have newness of life. And even now, he is alive and reigning as kings, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6 tells us. We're united to Christ by faith in him. Now, the last two things that I want to notice, I want to note from this passage are the two statements that he makes about those who believe in him. The first has to do with the resurrection, and I'm going to spend less time on this one. The second has to do with the life. So notice Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he makes two statements. And many commentators believe, and I agree with this, that the two statements flesh out the resurrection and the life. The first statement talks about the resurrection. The second statement talks about the life, the quality of the life that Jesus gives. So first he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, the first promise Jesus makes to those who believe in him is that in him we will rise from the dead. The death is not the last, does not have the last word. In him we can be assured that after we have passed away, he will raise us up on the last day. Jesus was sent before us, if you will, to die and, and pave a way through death to eternal life for us to walk on. In Christ we are now the holy ones that David speaks of in Psalm 1610 that will not see corruption. 
who God will not allow to see decay. And, and there's the, another promise too here, brothers and sisters. We, we know that in Christ, not only will our bodies be resurrected at the last day, but immediately upon death, we will pass into glory and be in Christ's presence. And is that not a comfort in death? Martha thought Lazarus is now going to have to wait until the last day to have any benefit from the resurrection. But no, upon death, you will immediately pass into glory and be in his presence. He told the thief on the cross, remember, Jesus did, that this day you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, if your faith in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, you can be assured that in the face of death, or death that is looming over you as a possibility in the future, near or far. And as dark as it may seem, the moment we pass out of this life, the arms of Christ are on the other side to welcome us into his presence. We can trust in him completely as our Savior who died and lives to save us to the uttermost, even in death. But then Jesus makes a second promise to those of us who believe in him. In verse 26, he says, he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now that's probably the more surprising of the statement to us. Shall never die? Well, he just said, though he die, yet shall he live. So what does this mean? We'll never die. Well, of course, it doesn't mean that we'll, they will not die physically. Because again, that would completely contradict what he said so far. Jesus' words here clearly teach that there is a sense in which once you place your faith in Jesus, you will never die. Death is only a door that you pass through. The kind of life that Jesus came to give to dead sinners doesn't wait until after we've died. It starts now. This is what he communicates in John 5, 24, where he said this, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death into life. There is no more death for him. On the moment he believes or she believes, you have eternal life and you will not come into judgment. The sting of death, which is sin, has been removed. And we are not accountable for that anymore. Death is now simply a door into a better life. The fullness of the eternal life that we already partake in. We could paraphrase Jesus' words in verse 26 like this. And I realize I'm taking liberties here, but I believe I'm doing it faithfully. The one who lives because of this believing in me, the one who lives and believes in me, has the kind of life in him now that will never end. Therefore, even though he will experience physical death and his body will die, the life that I have given to him will never end. It will go on even in death. And because we will no longer be limited by the sinfulness of the flesh, we will experience that life in greater and fuller ways. This is what it means to have eternal life, brothers and sisters. It will never end, and we have it now when we believe in Jesus. But then the Gospel of John teaches us that this eternal life is much more than simply having a life that doesn't end. It's not this life that goes on forever, because that would be miserable, wouldn't it? It's life of a different quality. It's 
true life. It's life that we were created to have. It's life that Jesus came as the second Adam to restore what was lost by the first Adam. Those who don't know Christ have only a shell of an existence, and it's not one that we should want. True life is only experienced when a person trusts in Christ. I want to give you a few examples in closing from John's gospel of what I mean. First of all, this life that Jesus gives you is a right knowledge of God. That's what eternal life is. John 17 verse 3 says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This makes sense. Again, when we remember, what did Adam and Eve lose? When, when, when God said, you will surely die, what did they first lose? Fellowship with God. Knowledge of God, right? They were banned from his presence. That was the separation. They, if you will, had the first death first, or the second death first. And then they died physically later. They were created in perfect fellowship with God. They walked and talked with God in an unhindered relationship. Jesus came to restore us to a right knowledge of God. And that's why eternal life is to know God personally, intimately, and lovingly. Second, the life that Jesus shares with us is a satisfying life. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And then what's the promise he makes? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is completely satisfying. The life that Jesus gives is an abundant life. He said in John chapter 10, just the previous chapter, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, fully, Jesus doesn't call you to sort of a dour, sour, lifeless existence. A resigned, sighing life. Life in Jesus is full. It has meaning and purpose. And it's only just begun. There are abundant reasons to be joyful and thankful. Have an abundant life. The life that Jesus gives is eternally secure. Jesus says this also in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is eternally trustworthy and so his people never have reason to doubt their security. They have passed from death into life. They will not face judgment ever. The life that Jesus gives is light in a dark world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus says this in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who share in the life that Jesus gives, they no longer walk in darkness, and they're no longer blinded by their sin. Our minds have been illuminated to see sin for what it is, and we're freed from our enslavement to it, and we can walk as we should in obedience to Christ. And finally, this life we receive in Jesus becomes life-giving to others. John chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We're blessed by Jesus to be a blessing in return to others. The life he pours into us will inevitably flow out to those around us. We aren't any longer those who take, take, take from other people, but we can give, give, give. We are messengers of Christ to bring the life that he brought to other people. 
Following this profound statement, Jesus asks Martha this question directly. Do you believe this? He's just said, whoever believes may share in this resurrection and life, and now he brings it home. What about you, Martha? Do you believe this? Martha probably didn't understand the full extent of what Jesus just told her because so much of it is fleshed out by his own death and resurrection. But she does respond with an exemplary faith in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, and she makes clear that her faith is in him, whatever he says. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And now this morning, I ask you, do you believe this, sinner? Do you believe this? Is your faith this morning in the risen Lord, or are you still dead in your sins? I don't ask you this morning whether you call yourself a Christian. Two-thirds of the world call themselves Christians. I don't ask you this morning what good things you've done in your life to demonstrate or prove that you are a Christian. All our righteous works are like filthy rags, Scripture tells us. And I don't ask you this morning even whether you believe in the historic creeds and confessions of Christianity. Even the demons know a lot of truth. And I don't ask you this morning how often you attend church, read your Bible, and pray, even though all of those things are good indicators of where your heart truly is. But they're not the most central thing. I ask only this. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do your eyes look to him alone? There is no more important question than to believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life? Is your heart trusting only in his righteous death or a righteous life, atoning death and justifying salvation, resurrection? Have you forsaken all other hopes and confidences? He is the resurrection and the life. In him is fullness of life and that life never ends. And that life is sweet fellowship with God for all eternity. Simply believe in him and it is yours. You'll be united with him in such a way that nothing can ever take you out of his grasp. But outside of him, you must face the ticking clock on your own. Outside of him, you must grapple with the vanity of this life that is brief and filled with sorrow and pain and death, and someday your own. Outside of him, the dark river of death awaits you even though you don't know when, but when it comes, it will sweep you away to the lake of eternal torment. So don't wait. Come to him this morning who died and was raised to give you eternal life. Let's pray. We praise you this morning, Jesus, who is the resurrection, and the life. And we thank you that you are not begrudging to sinners because we are all sinners. And not a single one of us deserves or ever could deserve 
the life that you came to bring. I pray this morning, Father, for any heart in here, any soul who has not placed their faith in Jesus alone, that you would, even this morning, cause them to hear the voice of the Son of God and that those who hear would live. And I pray for the comfort and the hope and the perseverance and the abounding love of all those who are truly united with Christ by faith. I pray this in his name. Amen.